Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. scared of falling down, but they do have an apparatus to help you go around so you don't fall down. So just, you know, something to think about. No, no, no. This is, this, this is to help you skate. So anyways, y'all going to have a good time. Uh, if we would please rise. We're going to be reading out of John chapter 16, verses 25 to 33. And God's word says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you have tri tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. May the Lord's peace be with you this day. At this time, our little kids are going to go out with Miss Jo. I'm going to take you guys over to Children's Church. Dear Lord, God, I pray that you would be with me this morning as I speak your words to your people. God, I ask that you would overcome my inadequacies, fill up what I lack, make all things straight and level. God, that you would overcome the hardness among the hearts of those who might hear. God, that you would transform the ears of the hearer and the voice of the speaker so that your word would be spoken and your word would be heard. That you would overcome all that does not belong here. And Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. This morning, during our video, they read these words. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, 
And I think this morning that that passage applies to so many of us. So many of us come to worship this morning burdened and heavy laden. Burdened by sickness or loss or pain. We seem to be living through a time right now marked by the total loss of enthusiasm or hope. Study after study shows that whether you are uh, on the political right or the political left, you think that the country is moving in the wrong direction. You think that the wrong people are in charge and you're leading us in the wrong place. There is anxiety that we feel every time we turn on the TV or every time we get on social media. There is anxiety every time a new version of COVID comes out. I saw a funny video the other day and it was talking about it had all of the different versions of COVID talking to each other. And it does seem like every time we turn around, there's something new happening. I, I can remember. You guys remember two weeks to flatten the curve? Anybody remember that one? Two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, yeah, two years later, yeah, the, 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 the curve ain't flat. And, and now we have gone through this time, and, and, and it seems like everything is broken. We've grown up in a place where, where we're not used to seeing empty shelves in the grocery store. We're used to being able to go down and, and buy whatever we need. We're used to governmental systems that function and transition of pow- transitions of power that are peaceful. And all of these changes have, have led to a general sense of anxiety and a loss of peace. Our passage this morning marks the last part of the last preaching discourse that Jesus will give in the Gospel of John. After this, in the Gospel of John, there's a prayer where, God, where Jesus is talking to God, and then there is the passion. This is the last piece of teaching that Jesus is about to give to his disciples. And in it, he's going to conclude themes that he's been working on for the last three years of his ministry. We're going to see, in these last few lines, what Jesus truly cares about. And what he wants his disciples to remember. He starts off by admitting that, what you, that much of what he has been saying has been hard to understand. That, that, takes a, that takes an honest person, right? It takes an honest person to stand up and say, hey, I know that m- most of what I've been saying is really confusing. But he admits it. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. Now, it's interesting because often when, uh, when, 
when a, a pastor takes a preaching class, when we talk about communication classes, people will hold up Jesus as the communicator par excellence. There's books, communicating like Jesus. Preach like Jesus. Use parables. Because Jesus made it simple enough for children to understand, right? Jesus was the great communicator. Except by Jesus' only own admission, he was not a great communicator. He communicated in figures of speech. And, and the word that he uses, figures of speech, is, is the same. It's a different Greek word. Uh, the, the word that's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the word uh, parable. Okay? But they mean basically the same thing. It's this broad term that can refer to stories or anecdotes or, or parables or uh, aphorisms. All of these different things that Jesus would use. And all of them have with them an element of complexity, an enigma. Je Jesus rarely comes out and says exactly what the kingdom of God is like. Instead, he wraps it in stories and proverbs. He doesn't come out and say exactly what he means. He couches his messages in ways that can be, that can be hard to understand. They're, they're a puzzle or a riddle that, that can't be understood without some missing key. And Jesus is admitting it. So, so why did Jesus do this? Why did he communicate in this difficult way? Well, later on, or earlier, he had a conversation with his disciples. See, it wasn't because he couldn't communicate. Jesus was perfect, right? He was divine. He could communicate at least as good as I can communicate, and I can't communicate that well. He could at least communicate as good as the best communicator out there. And yet he chose to speak in an, enigma, in an enigmatic way. And so why did he do this? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, he describes it to his disciples. He has just gotten done giving the parable of the soils. And you remember that one. This is where the, the farmer goes to the kingdom of God. It's like a farmer who's going to take his seed and he's going to cast it out. And some of it's going to fall on the road. And some of it's going to fall among the weeds, and some of it's going to fall among the rocks, and some of it's going to fall in the good soil. So he just stood out among a bunch of people, and everybody looks at him, and they have the response that people normally have when Jesus says something. They go, huh? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? And so Jesus retreats with his people, and he starts to tell them what the parable of the soils means. And after he got done explaining it to him, the disciples looked at him and they said, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Why wouldn't you just tell them what you just told us? And here's his response. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So in explaining why he uses difficult and confusing speech, Jesus used difficult 
and confusing speech. When Jesus gives his reason for speaking in parables, he doesn't say so that even children can understand. He doesn't say because people like entertaining stories. Instead, he's pretty blunt. He says, I speak this way so that people will not see and will not understand. That's interesting. Why would Jesus speak in a way that is hard for other people to understand? Well, Jesus explains this. He ties his ministry to the ministry of Isaiah. And he quotes directly from Isaiah. And he says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Now, he's taking this from a passage in the book of Isaiah that is the call of Isaiah. Okay, so let's go back to this. Isaiah is kind of a member of the royal family in Israel. The great king Uzziah has died. Isaiah has come into the temple during this time of mourning, and he has seen the glory of God poured out in the entire temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the, his glory filled the temple. And Isaiah is struck by this, and he falls on his knees, and he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He sees the sin and the brokenness of Israel, and he is broken before a holy God. And God sends an angel with a piece of coal, and it touches his mouth, and he says, Rise, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. I'll take on this mission. And here is the mission that God gives Isaiah. Go to the people, and they won't hear you. Tell them a message that will be so offensive that they will hate you and spit on you and reject you, and they will continue rejecting you until the cities fall and the nation lies in ashes. Isaiah came with a message of judgment, and the earthly ministry of Jesus is a ministry of judgment. He came to bring a message that the people could not accept. That's why he spoke in parables. He spoke in parables because there were some that were called to believe and many who were not called to believe. Christ's message has been cryptic and hard to understand by those who do not have ears to hear because his mission nested salvation through judgment. His message could only be understood by those that the Lord had enabled to understand. The gospel is a stench in the nostrils of some and the aroma of life to others. That's something that we have to understand. See, for many of us, we have lost the willingness and the desire to evangelize because we believe that we are the ones who convert people. 
This is one of the reasons why evangelism rates in the United States among the American church have dropped through the floor. Why it takes 80 Christians to share faith with one person. Because deep down, we believe that if we're clever enough or winsome enough or if we're a good enough communicator, then we can convince somebody to follow Jesus. And the flip side of that is if we're not, if we're just a regular person, we've been taught, well, we'll just, we'll just leave, it to the, we'll leave it to the good communicators. Right? We'll leave it to the people that, that you know, they can, they, they, to Billy Graham. Let, let Billy Graham do it. I'm going to outsource all my evangelism to Billy Graham so he can, he can share the gospel in a way because I'm just going to mess it up. I'm going to get in the way. Listen to me. God did not call any of you to make converts. You can't make converts. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can convert. What you have been called to do is to be his witnesses. To share the gospel fearlessly, regardless of cost, regardless of consequence. To cast that seed. And then God will bring the growth. This is the ministry of Jesus. To cast a seed that many will reject because it comes in a form that requires humility and life change in order to accept it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple leaders could not accept the will and the word of God because of who they were, because of their pride and their arrogance. Because in order to accept the word of God, they would have had to admit that they weren't as perfect and good and holy as they thought they were. So here at the end, Jesus is declaring to his disciples, he's reminding them that he has had the mission of Isaiah to preach words of hope to people that will not accept them as a form of judgment. Now, if you're a disciple and you have given up your family business and your family and your life in order to follow this guy, that's not what you want to hear. You, you want to hear that this guy has the ministry of Elijah, right? Bringing down fire and killing pagan priests and, and bringing down empires and doing all kind of cool stuff. That's the ministry. You want the ministry of Moses or de better yet, you want, you want to be following the ministry of David. Right? Where this guy's going to go kill all of your opponents, build a great big house, and marry 600 women and live for the rest of his life like that. That's, that's really the ministry that you want. You may not say you want that ministry, but that's the ministry you want. Following a man destined to be rejected by everyone and then killed is not a great career choice. That's not hitching your... Wagon to a star. And yet into the midst of this, Jesus comes to them and predicts a time of clarity and intimacy with the Father. He's saying, look, I know that the things that I've said have been opaque. But this time of judgment and confusion is about over. We are entering into a time now of clarity he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, 
And I do not say that, you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I believe that I've came from God. I come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. See, he's telling the disciples that the time is quickly approaching where this veil between them and God is going to be torn away. That, that, this, that this brokenness that has separated them from God is about to be gone. There's going to be a significant change in Christ's ministry to his people. He's not going to speak in riddles anymore. He's not going to speak in enigmas anymore. Their things are going to be clear to them. And this is going to happen for a couple of reasons. First of all, because everything that Jesus has said has relied on an event that hasn't occurred yet. All of his predictions, all of his lessons, all of these things are built on his death and his resurrection. And when that happens, it's like a key fits into a lock and everybody goes, oh, that's what he meant. By I'm going to go away and you won't see me and then I'm going to return and you will see me. Oh, okay. We got you now, Jesus. All of these things that you've been saying, they, they now begin to open up. It's why we can read the New Testament and be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And the disciples are like, what do you mean you're the bread of life? Do you need bread? Where's the bread come from? Are you hungry? Second thing that happens is Jesus comes back and he begins to teach them. There's this period of 40 days after he's resurrected from the dead and he goes back to his disciples and he's not just eating fish. We, we read in the Gospel of Luke this amazing story as the disciples are walking on their road to Emmaus. And what happens? Jesus shows up among them. And it says that from the prophets and the law all the way through, he shows them how everything fits. How everything that came in the Old Testament points to everything that happened in his life and his ministry. So when you read in the Gospel of Matthew, this happened in order to fulfill this prophecy. How does he know that? Because Jesus told him that. Jesus said, I did this to fulfill this prophecy. I still can remember when I took my first New Testament class, I had an amazing New Testament professor. And, and there was a moment where I was sitting in class and I was still working through drama and baggage that I had had from going through theology classes in, at Texas A&M. Just by the way, don't trust theology classes from a public university, okay? They will do more harm than good, okay? I took those classes, and they layered all kind of stuff on top. I got to read all the Gnostic Gospels and, you know, all that stuff that comes out in the, in the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the you know, the, the inquire, like, oh, a new Gospel's found. It's not a new Gospel. They found it back in the 1930s, and it's crazy. You don't want to read it anyway. Anyway, I had to read all that stuff, and I had all this baggage and, and all this kind of confusion in my mind. I remember my New Testament professor sitting down and clearly and concisely showing how everything in the Old Testament points to everything in the New Testament. And it was like something, a key had gone into a lock and turned and everything fit together. That happens after Jesus' resurrection. 
But see, something else is happening too. There, not only has Jesus' death and resurrection provided the, the, the lens by which we look at Jesus' ministry, not only has Jesus given them new teaching that, that helps complete the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit has moved into these people's lives and is empowering them. The Holy Spirit is inspiring them to write the letters that we call the New Testament. And then the Holy Spirit is also illuminating them so that when they read Scripture, they understand it. See, his teaching ministry isn't limited to simply giving them new and more complete information. He will repair the relationship that they have with God. He'll usher into a time when people can go into the presence of God and he's going to say, no longer will you be interacting with God in the old way. See, the old way of interacting with God was you would have to go to the priest and the priest would have to go through a long cleansing ritual and then go into the Holy of Holies. And, and if he didn't die, then maybe he could interact on behalf of the people before God. It was mediated through ritual and activity and sacrifice. But with the coming of Jesus, with his death and his resurrection, the veil of the of the temple is torn in two. This is the veil that separates the people from the Holy of Holies. This symbolic barrier of community with God. And it's, it's ripped apart so that the people can come into the presence of God now. So that they can come into the presence of God and experience God. And so now Jesus will ascend and sit at the right hand of God as the intercessor so that when we come into the presence of God, rather than God looking at us and seeing our sin and our brokenness, Jesus will be like, no, it's cool, he's with me. It's like going into the club, right? You wait at the, you wait at the, at the gate there and you're like, well, I can't really get in the club. But somebody famous comes in like, oh, he's with me. Oh, cool, I get to go in. I get to go into the VIP lounge. I, I don't know what that's like. I've never been in the VIP lounge. My, my time clubbing was very, very short. Some of you, it's been longer. I don't know. And so God has Jesus there to intercede for us. And so Jesus has ushered in a time of intimacy and clarity in the lives of his disciples. But we need to understand this. Intimacy and clarity with God does not mean tranquility. And this is where we get confused sometimes. We think, oh, okay, we're going to have clarity, right? So the disciples, what do they say? They were supposed to go, oh, now you're speaking plainly. Now we get it. We have victory now. You're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They're like, yes, aha, we know now. This time has come to pass right now. Jesus looks at them and goes, no, you really still don't understand. You don't understand what's about to happen. Jesus answered them, do you believe now? Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home and will leave me alone. Yet not, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He wants them to understand that their struggles are not over yet. They haven't come to the end of their struggles They've come to the start of their struggles. It's like when you're on the, on the roller coaster. We, we, went down to, we went down to SeaWorld and we rode on the, on the, uh, on the steel eel. 
and I took my daughter with me, and this was not a great idea. Don't take your eight-year-old daughter for the first roller coasters, the steel eel. That was a bad idea. Just across the board, it was a bad idea. So we're sitting next to each other, and this thing's clanking up the thing. She's like, is it over yet? I'm like, oh, baby, it hadn't even started yet. <laughs> like, we're not even, like, I'm really sorry. There's literally nothing I can do at this point. As we come to the top, and there's like a 12-story drop, and she's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, this is, it's about to start now. <laughs> I'm going to need you to breathe while you scream so you don't pass out, okay? Like, this, let's do that. That's a true story. I really did that because I'm a parent of the year. Good, good stuff. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's got these guys next to him. He's like, no, man, it, like, this wasn't bad. You mean when I made, all, made the food for us and handled all the problems and your biggest challenge was sleeping outside? That was not the challenge. The real challenges are about to happen. And he describes it this way. He says, in this life, you will have tribulation. That's a good word, isn't it? That's a good like. That's an old, that's a, that's an old Baptist word. It's, tribu it's not struggle. It's tribulation. You can, you, can handle, you can handle struggle, but man, tribulation? How are you doing? I'm in tribulation right now. I'm in the midst of tribulation. People will know that you are struggling if you're going through that. He's saying, in this life, you will have tribulation. There will be struggle. See, things have been opaque and confusing, and they're about to become clear, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be easy because the world that they are going to go into is filled with trouble. In fact, for most of these men, they have not even begun to suffer for the gospel. Up to this point, they've been coasting under Christ's leadership. And now they're about to be released to go do ministry on their own. Now they're going to face rejection, opposition, religious and political violence. On the face of it, this should not bring them any peace at all. And yet Christ tells them, I'm telling you this so that you will have peace. He's telling them that so that they will have peace. Jesus has come to bring clarity, brothers, not tranquility. He's come to bring clarity to us, not tranquility in our lives. So often people tell me that they want to know God's will for their life. Oh, if I just knew, right? That's a big prayer for people in high school. I just want to know what God's will is for my life. Um, no, you don't. I thought I wanted to know God's will for my life. I'm glad he didn't tell me. Often, we don't have the character to deal with the struggles that we're going to face. Most of you who've lived some life know what that is. We'd like to think that we would have gone back and still done the same thing knowing how hard they were. But let's be real we might not have. See, God's going to give us enough to be able to do his will, but he's not going to give us so much that we get scared out of our mind. He's not going to give us so much that we won't go and do the things that he's called us to do. And here's the amazing thing. In so often, the anticipation of a crisis is worse than the crisis itself. Now, I've said before about this, that the, the huge realization that I had 
when I, was, when I was deployed, that the actual IED was not nearly as bad as the anticipation of the IED. Because after the IED, after the explosion, it was just action and doing things. And so for a lot of our crises, God's not going to tell us that it's going to happen before it happens because he knows what it's going to take for us to get through on the other side. See, Jesus promises clarity and tribulations and together, these things don't seem like good news. They don't seem comforting at all. And yet Jesus concludes with something more. He concludes with the promise of victory. Right? See, so, so often what makes life so hard for us is that we don't understand what's happening. And we think that things are the end. Oh, COVID's here. I remember when COVID hit, right? Oh, this is the end. Everybody's going to die. The zombies are going to come. Yeah, I better start nailing, putting nails through my baseball bat so I can go and fight for food at the Walmart. No, that's not what it's going to be like. It's going to be more like you watch Netflix for a year. There'll be this thing called Tiger King. You'll love it. Don't pretend like you didn't watch Tiger King. See, if we knew how things were going to turn out, if we understood what victory would look like, it makes it easier for us to go through things. He said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in this world, that you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is warning them about the crisis to come so that they will have peace, that they won't have false confidence. If he just let them continue to believe that they had it all under control, then when the bottom fell out, they would break and be irretrievable. He doesn't want a false sense of confidence. See, things are about to get much harder for the disciples, but Christ has come to bring them the peace of certain victory. And his declaration that he will overcome the world encapsulates all of the promises that he has made to them over the last three years. Christ will be victorious over the devil. Over the last year we've been doing, we've been studying spiritual warfare in our discipleship groups. From the very beginning we have been enmeshed in a battle with the devil between the power of light and the power of darkness. And this fight between the power of darkness and the power of light is about to be decided once and for all. The devil has been working behind the scenes. He's been pulling strings. He's been putting things together and, and setting traps. And yet now there's about to be this cataclysmic battle between Jesus and the devil. It's like Rocky Four right now. And Rocky's about to go in and fight the Russian. You know, like Ivan Drago, he's like, I must break you. Right? You remember that scene. Some of y'all do. Some of you are like, Rocky, what's that? To you, I've, I have nothing. All of my pop culture references are 1990 and before. So just, this is high noon. Oh, wait, that's even older. <laughs> Gary Cooper's about to walk out into the street. And throw down. Jesus is telling his disciples, I got this. I got this. 
Christ is promising them victory over the world systems that oppose him. The ideas and the philosophies that seduce men and turn the hearts of the arrogant and the curious. He's about to give them rest. To give his people once and, for hour the, once and forever the power that Paul will say that they have to overcome arguments. To take hearts captive. Every emperor, every ruler that thinks he is more than he should be is about to be broken. That's what he's declaring. Most importantly, though, Christ is promising victory over death. And that means that his disciples will be the first in a long line of Christians who will never taste the sting of death. I want you to think about that. At this point, everybody before... Death is a terror. It's a long darkness. A separation from God. It's the terror of a night that never ends. But for these men, death is a doorway. It's a transition and not a, not a transition from one veil of tears to another veil of tears. It's a transition from a, a broken world to something far better than they could ever comprehend. It is ultimate, total, and complete victory over what has been the worst thing for humans to deal with. We, we were talking about this in, in discipleship the other day, how, how as, as we grow, as, especially as men, we go through this phase where the, in, in our early life, the, the biggest thing that we struggle with is the struggle of our flesh with lust. And then we get, a, get to a point where, where our struggle with lust kind of dissipates. And it's replaced with a fear of death as our body decays. I've gone through that this year. Where I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I finally, finally dealt with the lust thing that's, that's going pretty good. I'm like, oh, now I'm constantly afraid that I feel cancer right in here. I just want you to know, when I come to you and I tell you, oh, I have, a, I have a, tummy, a stomach pain, and you tell me, oh, let me tell you about my friend's pancreatic cancer, that doesn't help me. <laughs> Just throwing that out there, like, oh, you need to get that looked at. That could be the, the liver flukes eating you alive from the other. Please don't tell me that. And yet, even as we struggle with our mortality, we know that there's victory over death. Right, even if this is, even if my tummy ache is cancer that's eating me alive in here, which it's not, by the way. No. The worst thing that happens is I get to go see Jesus on my worst day. The worst news is that I get to go see Jesus. That's what Christ's victory over death brings us. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come to bring clarity and conflict, but he has come to bring victory, full and final victory over all things. And so he wants his disciples to rest in the peace of his full and final victory over all that they will face and everything that they will struggle in. That's how he concludes his discourse. That's the peace that he wants to leave with them. Ultimately, this is the clarity, the great unveiling that he's working in the lives of his disciples. These are the things that will be made clear to them. 
This is the clarity that will bring them peace. He's pulling back the curtain to show them how the great mechanisms of history and politics, how all of them have led up to this moment when he will break the back of hell and death and Satan for all time. Brothers and sisters, this hasn't changed even today. We live in our lives, we live our lives in a battlefield. Things are hard. Sometimes, many times, we feel overwhelmed by the setbacks, by the tribulations of a hostile world. And yet Christ wants us to have peace, to rest in the unfolding victory of his life. Brothers and sisters, in this life we will have tribulations, but we are to be at peace because Christ has overcome the world that we live in. Listen to me. In this life, we're going to struggle. People will get sick. People will die. Bad things will happen. And for us to overcome these things, we have to hold and struggle in the peace provided by victory over every aspect of our personal crisis. I want you to hear me now, though. There is a theological framework that's come about over the last 50 years that, that, that says that we just have to live in victory. You ever heard that? Just live in victory, brother. Claim your victory. What does that mean? I've had people come to me and say, like, I had cancer and I claimed victory and I still have cancer. Why do I still have cancer? Claiming victory in Christ is not a magical formula that automatically makes everything better. That's not how it works. You don't need to name your blessing and then claim your blessing. L listen to me, there's no difference between that and the kind of garbage that Oprah spews about putting out good things in the universe and bringing good things back in. Like you can speak reality into being through the force of your will. You, you don't have that power, guys. That's God. You, sometimes we get confused. There is a God. We're not him. Okay? If you take nothing away from my sermon, take that away. Living in victory means something completely different. It means trusting that Christ is victorious even when things look bad. Because see, here's the way that the devil works. Something bad happens to you and then he starts lying. Right? He starts lying to you. He tells you that Oh, it's never going to get better. Oh, you're just a failure. Everything you've ever done is wrong. Why even try? The devil lies to you. It's bad and it's never going to get better, so you might as well just give up, curl up into a ball, and go to sleep. Living in victory is the understanding that God can and does affect the world that we live in in a real and a tangible way. Brothers and sisters, there's many of you guys out there that are struggling in your marriages. You're fighting through your marriages. And I want you to know this right now, that the death and resurrection of Christ means that there is hope in the midst of a struggle in marriage. See, the devil comes to you and says, oh, people don't change. 
He's never going to be every di- ever be a- any different than he is right now. Like that coworker that sits next to you and is like, oh, he's a dog. You deserve better. Or your coworker that you work with is like, she's crazy, man. Thursday's trash day. You need to take that out to the curb. I know people that have said that. But because of Christ, because of Christ, we know that people change. Right? Not magically. Like if I live in victory, the fact that my spouse is mean or abusive is going to change. No, that's not what living in victory means. It means trusting that the power of the Holy Spirit can sanctify the life of a believer to the place where they are now livable again. That you can recover from infidelity. And you can recover from emotional distance. And you can recover from the mistakes of a broken family. That in Christ... Broken things can be made new. See, the challenge in marriages most of the time is we drop out of a marriage while we're still in the fight. And we drop out of that marriage in the middle of the fight. It freezes the brokenness exactly where it will stay forever. We don't give the Holy Spirit time to begin to restore things. Now hear me. I'm not saying that you should stay with somebody who is physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive. I'm not saying that. But most of the time, it's not that. Most of the time, it's not this person is physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive. It's this person has become somebody I can't stand. Like just the look at their face makes me want to choke them. Come on. That's a real thing. Not for me, but for y'all. The Holy Spirit can change us, right? The Holy Spirit reminds us that I'm just as much of a sinner as my wife, probably more. And that through repentance and grace, something new and beautiful can come out of something that is broken. But but it's it's not just our marriages, right? This extends across the board. Many of us struggle with the dread of living in a nation that seems to be slipping into chaos and decay, right? We go to the news, God help us, and read the headlines. We're like, oh, it's getting worse and worse and worse. We got the big story, what was the big story on Fox? Two transgendered swimmers beat each other. Like, what does this even mean? My friends were texting me like, what, is this? what are they talking about? This is confusing. It's like, it's confusing because it's confusing. One of them's a dude that became a girl who beat a girl that became a dude or something. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. That's the world we live in. That's what we're talking about right now. Or, 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 or what's going to happen with our vaccines or what's going to happen with the border or what's going to happen with our tax or what's going to happen with the deficit. The whole thing seems to be falling down on us and we wring our hands and we're like, what are we going to do? Do you think this is the first time that Christians have lived through the fall of an empire? Let, let me tell you. When Rome got sacked by the Visigoths, it wasn't great. And you know what happened? The Christians were the ones that pulled the city out of its ashes. The Christians were the ones that didn't lose hope when plague swept across the Roman Empire. For thousands of years, Christians are the ones that keep their head on straight when everything falls apart. You know why? Because we have hope. 
Because we know that our God already has victory. So guess what? I don't know what's going to happen to our country. We may turn it around and everything will be great. It may be morning in America again. Or you know what? The whole thing may turn into a flaming pile on the ground. But guess what? It doesn't matter. Because Christ is still king. And he still has victory. And if we will accept that, then we can overcome all of the lies that the devil, that the devil tells us. You know what the devil tells us? He says, well, if the country falls apart, then, then you know, they're going to take you into the city square and cut your heads off if you don't follow Jesus. Well, that might happen, but probably not. It's probably more likely you'll just lose your job or maybe harder to work at your job. But it's probably not going to be as hard as it is in Cuba. And guess what? I know lots of Cuban Christians, and they love Jesus. I can remember going to Cuba and sitting in the line to go talk to the, to the secret police that weren't so secret. It's like, how can you be secret police when you're wearing a uniform? But whatever, that's, not, that's neither here nor there. And I'm like, what am I going to say? What if they ask me about Jesus? I'm not sure. I'm from America. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm with this Cuban guy. And I'm like, well, what do I do if they, he's like, oh, if they ask me, I just tell them about Jesus. What's the worst they're going to do? And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm a little girl. I apologize. <laughs> right? It's okay. It's going to be okay. Christ has victory over the sinful systems and the evil leaders of this world. And that means that we can endure, not just, not just endure, we can thrive in the midst of these things. We can overcome them. Our success as a church isn't based on whether Donald Trump is the president or not. Our success as a church is whether or not Jesus is king. Many of us struggle with the necessities of life, of health care, food, and shelter. And yet Christ has declared that even these are not outside of the reach of his father. Because I don't, I don't know what you're struggling with right now. I don't know what your issue is. It could be your marriage. It could be the country. It could be poverty. Whatever it is, Christ's victory gives you the power to endure, to overcome, to thrive in the midst of crisis. I don't know what you're struggling with today, but I do know this. Christ's victory over the world only comes to those who have a relationship with him. See, we've made a lot of promises today, and we've said a lot of things today. But all of those things apply to someone who has a relationship with Christ. I don't want you to leave this place with a blanket feeling of hope if no hope exists. Listen to me, if you have never made a profession of faith in Christ, if you have never given your life to him and you are living as an enemy of God, there is no hope. If you close your eyes in death, there is nothing but darkness eternal forever. When your life falls apart, there's nothing there to catch you. The pain that you feel in this life is meaningless. If you don't have Christ, you are living out the worst nightmares of every 
nihilist that ever came through France. Go read some Albert Camus and, and, and realize that he's talking about you. All life is pain and meaningless and signifies nothing. But the good news is that that doesn't have to stay that way. That there is a pathway to victory and meaning and recovery and hope, but that pathway leads to Christ. Not through Christ in Buddha or Christ in Islam or, or Christ in crystals or Christ in spirituality. There is only one way into this hope, and that is through Christ. He is the narrow path. But he leads to eternal life. And not just eternal life, but fullness of life. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is the time in our service where we ask you to reflect on your life. We really look at who we are. I would encourage you, if you don't have a relationship with Christ and you want one, come forward. we got some deacons up here that will talk with you and pray with you and help you understand what this looks like. Maybe you've made a profession of faith. You've accepted Christ, but you've never walked with him in baptism and discipleship. If, if that's you, if you've been lost and you're looking for a way to renew your relationship with him, come forward. We'd love to get you linked into one of our discipleship groups, get a mentor for you that'll help you. I don't, I don't know where you are right now, but what I do know is that there is hope, but it's hope that you have to take hold of. It's hope you have to respond to. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.